Alabama, they're just they're basically a pro a pro team I and know. <laughs> competing against them. It's I'm a Kentucky fan for basketball. Okay. So I understand what people who are in the SEC feel because okay. you're like, how? what's the point in even showing up? You you guys are just running a bunch of pros out there. That's We're right. just college students trying to get an education and maybe make it to the league. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. For listening to kickback, and I know that's very surprised. Yo, welcome back to the kickback. I am joined today by the illustrious Dr. Cheryl Field Smith. She is an associate professor of elementary education at UGA, the University of Georgia, number one in the SEC right now. Woo. Go Bulldogs! Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Go go Bulldogs! <laughs> And I'm just, I'm excited to introduce you all to her. We're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, Dr. Cheryl, please tell the audience who you are, where you're from, and what it is that you do. Okay, so I am originally from Norwalk, Stamford, Connecticut. I um, am a graduate of Hampton University. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. I went to work for Xerox just to see what the corporate environment was like. And um, I didn't like it. <laughs> so I decided to listen to my mother finally and become a teacher. I went to the University of Bridgeport, got a master's degree um, in elementary education. And I taught in Connecticut in um, very urban district, Bridgeport. And then I taught in, a, in suburbs, Stamford, Connecticut, Norwalk, Connecticut. And it, the quality of education was so different and it, was, it bothered me. And so I decided to go back and get a PhD. And for that, I went to Emory University in Atlanta and um, learned a whole lot of things about the social political context of education that I didn't know. Um, trying to answer that question, what happened to Thurgood Marshall's work in terms of Brown versus Board of Ed, learned that it wasn't just his work. It started with um, um, way before he even landed in, at Howard University. Um, it's a book called Simple Justice about that's the backstory of um, the Brown versus Board of Ed. It took a lot to get there to that point. But um, I became fascinated with this idea that Black parents were perceived as not engaged in their children's education. And in comparison to our history, because while I was at Emory, I learned about African-American educational history. And this idea that we're perceived that we don't care. So my whole dissertation ended up being about how black parents perceive their own engagement in their children's education. And one of the things that I found my parents that I talked to in that um, were in their forties and fifties. And these were people who back then, cause this was, 20 years ago when I was doing this study, but these were people who had integrated their schools, right? So they, they were their, the little rock nine for their own little, their communities. And when I was talking to them about their engagement, it was deeply tied to the entire school. I had to really push them to talk about their individual children. They had a collective idea. So when you talk about their engagement, it's, you know, when there was no more room on the buses, 
what they had to do to, to get the Board of Ed to um, give them more buses because of overcrowding in the school, things like that. And, and trying to get them to see it from just their own children was, it was hard, which was interesting. Um, I, I always, when I went to get this PhD, I thought I was going back to my classroom, but along the way I fell in love with my research. And um, so I took a professorship at the University of Georgia. I've been here now 18 years. This is my 18th year, I can't believe it. Um, and so I teach teachers who wanna be elementary school teachers. I teach people who are elementary school teachers. And I also teach people who wanna be like me, a teacher, educator, a researcher one day. Um, but I, I got caught up in this homeschooling I, I fell into it. I, I want to be honest. I feel like God led me to it. I, when I got to UGA, I wanted to replicate my dissertation. So in the same schools, but with the younger parents, the parents who were in the 20s and 30s, the older parents didn't know the younger parents. So it was hard for me to find them. And someone referred me to a 32-year-old woman who was homeschooling. And I I didn't know that black people homeschooled at that time. I, it was a shock to me. And I, I really wanted to talk to her to understand why. And thankfully she was very gracious with her time. It was a four hour interview. I, I got to talk to her children. She had three daughters and understanding why she would do this. And I, she knew so many other people and I said, okay, I've got to get a, a grant to be able to do a bigger study. Um, grants help buy me out of my teaching so I can focus on the research. So that's why they're important. Plus they give me money to um, somewhat compensate my participants, right? I wanna be able to do something for them in, in return for what they're doing for me. Um, but that, that study, it was 46 black families, mostly in the Metro Atlanta area who were homeschooling and I ran out of money. I had to stop. I mean, I could have had more than 46. Um, there were so many people doing it at that wow. time. This was in the two, this was 2006 to 2008. And it has grown much more since then. So it's, um, it's really amazing to me what, what this uh, social movement, if you will, of home, black homeschooling. Yeah. I I'm I'm in New York and I don't know I don't know many I don't think I know any black people who homeschool their kids and growing up whenever first of all there's all the stigmas around a homeschool child they're like yeah. oh that kid's weird and now that I know a lot of homeschooled adults I'm like you I think you guys might have turned out a little bit better than the rest of us <laughs> but also it was it was this thing that was a function of time right so my mom was she was a single mother to three kids and I, I couldn't imagine a world in which she, how she would have homeschooled us. There, there was literally just no way. Yeah, yeah. And today so, it's possible. Yeah, today it's possible. it's cool. Yeah, yeah, oh, I, I think yeah. about it all the time, but, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to get there. I've, I've okay. got two questions for you. Okay. One, you went to Hampton. Mm -hmm. So is that the real HU? Yes. Is there another one? <laughs> Just, just some little, some little school in DC. You know, they they would have something to say about that. 
Look, I'm a I'm a Sora of Alpha Kappa Alpha, and our founders okay. were on Howard's campus, so I have to mm-hmm. I have to honor them too. <laughs> uh, the second question I have: You mentioned that you started teaching in more urban Bridgeport, and then moved out to the suburbs. What? Mm-hmm. And you said the quality of the education was different. What What mm-hmm. were some of the things you noticed in that? Yeah, so I was teaching in the 1990s, but um, most schools had copy machines. Not my school in Bridgeport. We still had what was called a ditto machine. I don't, people probably don't even know what that is, but we had to literally turn a crank and there was this purple ink and it would get all over your hands. It was a mess. It was antiquated. Um, that school, oh my goodness, we had no supplies. There was maybe paper, pencil, bare minimum, but crayons, I had to get that. Chalk, I had to get that. Um, There was no science curriculum. There was no um, social studies curriculum. I was teaching first grade and the reading um, material, the lessons were scripted. Reading, language arts, and I believe math were all scripted. So I had, I was supposed to memorize lessons, memorize these scripts and then deliver them. Um, And if you think about that, I I had been to school working on how to teach. There's nothing in in there talking about memorizing scripts. Not only that, I had these hand signals. Um, Anybody that's a teacher from back in this time will know it it was called the DISTAR program and we had to say get ready and we were snapping and doing this all day to get kids to react to they knew what to do when you said get ready so all that to say the quality of instruction there was no time for these kids to actually think you know and to write and to create and i decided okay i know what first graders are supposed to learn in social studies and science and so we're going to set up we're going to have experiments going on. We're going to talk about, you know, the things that we're supposed to be, you know, community helpers, those things. I'm going to read books to you that are real books. The books that they had, had this system. And, it, you know, it's supposed to, it was so structured. It was supposed to help them learn to read. But there was no mechanism to get them to read real books, right? It was direct instruction no time for learning centers and time to explore ideas. And so I had, I did that. I had to do that. Um, When you walked in this school, all the desks were in a row with the teacher's desk in the front, like the, the peanuts, like uh, what's his name? Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown. You know, I, I was the teacher. I was shaping us into use. Part, I was constantly changing, driving my custodian crazy, but you know, I wanted to see what worked. And I also wanted to create novelty in my classroom. It's not, you know, you don't know what the classroom's gonna be, you know, organized in um, when you walk in, right? To be a little bit surprised <laughs> one day, yeah. um, to have fun, you know, to let you talk to one another and learn from one another. I'm not the only teacher in the room. Um, you know, that, that's how I was, I don't, I don't know, part of my training, I was always told I was a natural. 
and I, I, I was like, okay, but I want some, like, help me to be better kind of thing. But I, I it did, teaching came naturally to me. It, uh, it did, um, particularly with kids. It, um, you know, I, I honor them. I, I see them as able to contribute to the classroom, not um, vessels that need to be filled, right? It's not that I have all the knowledge and I have to give it to you. No, you have some ideas about these things. If we're talking about simple machines, you have things in your home, you know, that, that operate like a pulley maybe, you know, the clothesline or whatever, you know? Um, so I wanted them to bring that knowledge into the classroom so that it helps me to make sure they understand, right? So, yeah, it was, um, you know, but then when you go to the, the, the suburbs, my principal comes in one day and says, I need a wish list from you of five things you want. And I'm looking around. I have state-of-the-art computers. I have my own teaching assistant. I have books, tons of books. I have math manipulatives. I mean, I need nothing. And um, he says to me, listen, there's a surplus in the budget. Mm -hmm everybody's getting some, you know, stuff and I want to know what you want. I don't want you to be left out. That was one of the hardest things I had to do because I knew that that money really could have gone to Bridgeport. Those teachers could have benefited from that. And um, in 1994, I think it was, there was a Chef versus O'Neill case in Connecticut. And it was a black family that sued the Board of Ed in um, Hartford saying that their son could get a better quality education outside of the city of Hartford than in the city of Hartford. And they won. The, the court said, you're right. And they told us, told the state to fix it. And I got really excited. I thought, okay, Connecticut is gonna show the rest of the country how to make this more equitable. That's not what happened. Two or three years later, the family went back to court because nothing had happened really. And um, this time the court said, um, it's because of district lines where people live and where they choose, I'm doing quotations, right? Choose to, to where they choose to live and go to school. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I don't think the kids, the families in Bridgeport are choosing to be there. I'm sure they would want better for their children, but not all of us have the resources to choose. And so that made me get really angry. And, you know, sometimes when you get angry, it makes you do things. <laughs> and that's what made me pursue the PhD. I just got frustrated. I said, how can we not fix this problem? It shouldn't matter where a kid lives. You know, the quality of education should be superb for all of our children, no matter where they are. And it's just, it's not fair. It's not equitable. It's not fair. Um, and then I found out about politics and, um, you know, mm. white supremacy um, <laughs> and how it has infiltrated our educational system historically um, and in practice. Oh, yes. yeah. you, you would think as a nation that prides itself on being the best and thinking we're number one, that we would prioritize the education of everybody. Now, you might want to hold people down later, 
but you want to at least have a bunch of smart people running around you you would think i don't have the numbers in front of me but the top 10 percent of school districts get billions billions tens of billions more in funding than the bottom 10 percent and oftentimes like a stanford and a bridgeport or you know out here like a garden city in the hempstead they're usually right next door to each other Mm-hmm. right next door yeah. and it is like that that makes me so angry me too so me angry too. me too I mean, how do we when i left bridgeport <clears throat> i i my salary increased and i was only 15 20 minutes down the road you know that's you know and when i was in bridgeport we had one teaching assistant for four teachers when I went to Stanford, I'm teaching second grade now, and I have my own teaching assistant. When I was in Norwalk, I had my I was teaching fourth grade and I had my own teaching assistant. Didn't have to share. That that extra person in the room makes a world of difference. A world of difference. Down here in Georgia, where I am now, there's a mentality that we don't need teaching assistants after a certain grade, like third, fourth, fifth grade. You don't need that. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, you do. Because just because they're, the kids are in fourth grade, it doesn't mean everybody's on the same level. And having that teaching assistant means that I can sort of divide and conquer. I'm still going to teach everybody, but that extra person can do some reinforcement for kids that, that need it. So those kids will actually see two teachers during a reading time, me and my teaching assistant. They get double. Yeah, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade even. (laughs) Extra people that are trained to to assist in a classroom is needed. That's it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could probably even go further, right, with the current delayed emotional and mental development of kids these days. I can see junior high, maybe even freshmen in high school, just needing that extra help. There's nothing wrong with needing extra help, with giving extra help, because ultimately we're trying to produce not just productive citizens, but Mm -hmm. people who can contribute to society and continue to push the ball forward. So why would you, why would you want to hold them down in that? That, These are the things that baffle me, but then you go back to that word politics and you understand why. Yeah, I, 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 when I wrote my statement to get into Emory, I wrote about this urban-suburban inequity, and that's what I wanted to research. But as I started to read it, um, you know, because they, they say, okay, if that's what you want to study, right? So you start reading about um, how busing came along, um, the politics behind that. I, I just, I didn't want to study that anymore. <laughs> it, was, it was depressing. <laughs> It was really depressing. And um, so, you know, I shifted to the parents and and that is, you know, this perception. How did black parents come to be seen as not interested in a children's education? And part of that is the way school people define fam, uh, parental involvement, right? Parental involvement does not just happen at school. When I moved to, um, Georgia, I was no longer a teacher in my children's school, right? I was just a parent now. (laughs) 
And I remember I wanted my son to go to a particular private school because he had a um, processing disorder and they were really good for special ed. And this teacher looked at me and she's like, she saw the name of the school. She said, oh, you're gonna have to be a much more involved parent in order to get in here. And I'm thinking, I don't know how I can be any more involved. I'm like, what do you need? So she said, well, you know, you need to come in school. I'm like, okay, well, I will be here tomorrow. Do you know what this woman had me doing? What? She gave me a stack of papers to copy in the copy room. I'm certified to teach pre-K to eighth grade in, in Connecticut and Georgia. And she puts me in the copy room. That's your idea of engagement? Yeah. So after wow. that, I, I had an I had a conversation with her after. I said, listen, you know, have you noticed how my son comes to school prepared? Have you noticed how he doesn't cause you any, you know, my son was never, my children were never a big uh, behavior problems. They knew they would catch, you know what, when they got home. Right? <laughs> they knew better. And it wouldn't be just for me, it would be from grandma, their dad, I mean everybody. <laughs> And I'm a single parent, but once dad and dad was in New Jersey and we were in Georgia, but dad would lay in too. And, and the next time you see dad, <laughs> mm-hmm. he would take care of it, you know? So um, they just, they knew better. And, and I said, have you ever noticed how he wants to learn? Mm. And, you know, she would, she would say, yeah, yeah, he's a good kid. He's a good student. I said, that's, that's me and his dad. We instilled those things. That's my engagement. I'm giving you the best I have to offer and I'm supporting you when, and and I'll come into school and help, but me being in the copy room does nothing for these kids. Yeah. No. And so that, that also helped me shift my um, interest, my research interest to parents because, you know, there's a white teacher, you know, I was working on a PhD. I have classes during the day. I have to read extra to figure out what my dissertation is going to be. I'm a busy lady. (laughs) And I don't have time to sit up in your school all day and, and make copies. However, if you need me to work with some children, if you need me to read a story to somebody, you know, I'll come and do those things. But making copies, that's a waste of my time. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's just it's a not. it's a gross misapplication of your gifts and talents and expertise. Absolutely. And it's not engagement. That's not family engagement yeah. in children's learning. I need to be in the classroom helping because if I hear how you're teaching math, then maybe I can learn the new because this new math, oh my goodness. <sighs> I'm hoping they go back before my daughter is old enough to start doing that because I'm not ready. Oh my goodness. But if I could be in the, and and you know what? I ended up doing that. You know, I I pushed my way into these classrooms to understand how they were teaching because I didn't understand math, how that that stuff that was coming home. I I said, I got to hear how they're teaching this because this is not making any sense. But, you know, there are some schools that are doing things right. Like when they have the open house nights and they bring you into the schools and you are learning how your children are learning, you're seeing a lesson being taught that that's that now I can go home and use the same language. Right. And I can reinforce better. 
But if we don't talk to each other, if parents and teachers don't talk to each other, I'm still doing what I was taught, the, you know, borrowing and caring. Yes. <laughs> you, the the now, right way. Oh, no. <laughs> You know? Yeah, that that is the right way, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so. But yeah, we we have to. I guess we have to learn it the way it's being taught, so that our kids can pass the test. Which yeah. so there's a whole lot of issues there as a well. Whole lot, a whole lot. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, I think about myself, right? Like I was a perpetual C student all the way, okay. oh, all wow. the way through. Except in grad school. In grad school, I was a B plus student because I that's when I actually started to apply myself and I was oh, older. Wow. And I'm thinking about getting a P I'm not thinking, I'm gonna get a PhD. I've yes. I have to I have to say I'm gonna do it because otherwise yeah. if I'm just thinking about it, I'm gonna think about it forever. Right. But you know, my, my big fear is taking the GRE because I, mm. I've never been great at the at the standardized test. And you know, I look at my kids and I think. I think it's just a parent thing, right? You see yeah. so much of yourself in your kids. Yeah. And I'm like, what what am I gonna do for you? Or how can I help you if you struggle in the same ways that I'm that I've struggled with? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's like, so I guess my question is let me I wanna I wanna I wanna disrupt your limited belief thinking. Please, here. please, I need it. First of all, there are a lot of grad schools such as mine, ETAP, Educational Theory and Practice, we would be happy to have you as a PhD student. <laughs> we do not require the GRE for entrance into the PhD program. So, and I, I'm sure that we're not the only school. If you shop around, there's other schools that are like that. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't predict your success as well as we used to think it, it, it does. There's other things a writing sample, for example, that will help us. Um, the other thing is, this is where God steps in because when I applied to Emory, I didn't know what Emory was, okay? I had no clue. I literally filled out the application and back then we didn't have online applications. I had to mail it in. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, I'm old. <laughs> um, gosh, but I mailed it in that day. And then I went to Barnes and Noble and you know, they had the books about the colleges and all of that. I opened up the book and looked at um, Emory and it said highly competitive. And I said, oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> Not thinking that I would get in. I got a phone call from Dr. Jackie Jordan Irvine, multicultural education, she has since retired, but she called me up and she said, I'm calling to see if you are who you appear to be on paper. Wow. We had an hour long conversation, much about what we're talking about now, the disparities of um, urban suburban education, my experiences, what's making me want to get a PhD. At the end of the conversation, she said, well, I'm calling you because I'm about to stick my neck out for you. Wow. You didn't quite make the score for the GRE in math. You missed it by a few points. And a lot of, it was a lot. 
<laughs> I can't remember how many, but but you write beautifully. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, and the passion I hear in your voice, I'm going to stick my neck out for you. And my response was, you tell me what I need to do. This was like in early spring. I will take courses this summer to shore up my math. I know I can do it. And, and you know, I just went on and on. And then she, she let me do all of that. She said, see, that's why I'm sticking my neck out for you. <laughs> wow. I know you're going to do what you need to do. You, you don't know. You don't know. Don't, don't limit yourself. If it's for you, it's for you. Nobody's going to take it from you. Amen to that. I, you know, these are words that I try to remember and I, I try to preach that to myself all the time. Like, you know, you can do it. Uh, the listeners to this podcast know I, I talk about how my entire life I've just I've struggled with confidence and believing mm. in myself. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to get to that place in my mid 30s, which it's it's never too late uh, where, where I'm not there anymore. I um <laughs> I tweeted yesterday that in 2022, I am going to stop making all of those self-deprecating jokes because mm-hmm. really it's it's just a cover for insecurities and other things. Mm-hmm. And then I go, but for the next two months, boy. <laughs> and my sister responds. She goes, there's no time like today. That's right. Like, you're right. But I got to get these jokes off. Let me get these <laughs> jokes off and then I'm going to stop. <laughs> but you are, you are, you are right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thinking about homeschooling. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's another place where I'm, I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have the patience. Is homeschooling for everyone? Ooh. I think it's a commitment. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to, to borrow from the words of home educators I've talked to. Um, it's a commitment to be present for your children in a way that you yourself didn't experience, right? Probably if you weren't homeschooled, then you probably didn't experience that much presence of your parents. Um, And I still, it's hard for me to wrap my mind about it, around it. I considered homeschooling my son when he was making that transition from elementary to middle school, because he was slated to go to a middle school that had a bad reputation and I didn't want him in there. I ended up not homeschooling because I felt like it was too late for me at that point because mm. I would, I could be his mom and, but I didn't think I could also be his teacher because of the relationship that he and I had. Um, I didn't, I just didn't think it would work. I, I would be, we would be butting heads a lot. <laughs> so I made this decision not to. Um, and, but at that time I didn't know about the community of homeschooling that was going on around me. I had no idea. So this is before I I started, you know, that I knew anything about black people homeschooling. I was thinking about it as a way of avoiding a school and God worked that out. He didn't have to go to that school anyway. So, you know, your faith has to, you know, be a part of this too. So, you know, you know, well, no, you don't know. Sometimes you don't know what you're capable of. Um, there are people in Brooklyn homeschooling. There are people all over New York homeschooling. I know some of them. Um, you, if you decide to homeschool, you don't have to do it alone. There are co-ops 
where you can meet up, share the teaching. But, and I'm just meeting you today, right? But that little conversation we had before the start of this podcast Mm -hmm. tells me that you can. Mm -hmm. The stuff that you're doing for other people, make sure you're doing it for your own. And I know you are, but I just want to make sure people know that, right? That you are doing it for your own too. So when you're teaching about our ancestors, that's something that's missing from the school system. And every parent, whether you decide to homeschool or not, your children need to know who we are as black people in terms of our contributions to this country, to the world, in terms of your own family history. Who who are your ancestors in your own, you know, your great, 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 great. And, you know, it's getting a little easier to trace back as far as you can, but just knowing who your own people are can be motivating for your kids because when they overlay what grandma and grandpa did with what they know about the, 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 that historical time, how much they had to strive and struggle to overcome yeah. in your own family now, right? Then the question is, look, you know, I, I, I didn't have to say it to my children. They realized not on the farm anymore, picking <laughs> cotton and tobacco, right? Y'all got almost everything mm-hmm. you could possibly want. What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with it? You're going to throw it away? You know, we have their great grandmother, my grandmother, ran a black newspaper in Arkansas during the 1940s, 50s, during wow. Jim Crow. Okay, that's who your people are. <laughs> now, yeah, no what are you going to do? No excuses. <laughs> yeah. No excuses. And by the way, if you want to, you know, not, my son didn't go to college right away. He waited. He was a security guard and he had a hard way of it. And I let him do it because he didn't want to go to college. I'm not going to force you to go to college. I think you should go to college. I went three times. <laughs> your sister's in college she's gone twice it's on you i'm not you chart your path i'm not but whatever you do you do it as unto the lord so you're going to be the best you can be in that that's right do it to the utmost and and live a right life that's what matters right yeah. so can anybody homeschool i i want to say yes but you have to have that commitment i couldn't do it so it's hard for me to say, you do it. Because <laughs> I understand, I understand when you, the hesitancy, because it's an awesome responsibility to assume full control of your children's education. When they're little, I, I don't even want to say, I'm not even going to say that, I'm not going to finish that. But when they're, but when they're little, because here's the thing, you're laying the foundation of what it yeah. means to learn, Right. So whatever you're doing, they need to enjoy it if you want them to be lifelong learners. Because yeah. if, if, if you're having them come to the kitchen table, like my mother used to do this, she would ha- go somewhere. I don't know where that woman went, but she would come home with these workbooks and worksheets. And I'd be sitting there having to do all this. And <laughs> it was miserable. I didn't want to do that. Oh, yes. Don't do that to your kids. <laughs> 
I know I turned out all right, but you know what my mom did? My mom was a librarian. She would bring books home. Mm. And as she got to know what I was interested in, she would bring books home and then we would talk about them. And I love to read now because of that. But you know, those worksheets filling out and my handwriting was sloppy. She'd make me do it over again and over again. Oh, I hated that stuff. You know, it's a wonder I did go back to school three times. <laughs> you know, but we, we don't, it shouldn't be miserable for you and it shouldn't be miserable for them. It should yeah. be enjoyable. And whether you so, do or not, you should teach your children. You are their first teacher. Yeah. So I have a, a true logistical question and, <laughs> and just okay. how do people do this? So I, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home dad right now. Okay. My kids, my babies, four, two, and one. The wow. oldest is in is in preschool, but I still have the other two. And I'm like, yeah. all right, I got to I got to clean up this. I got to make dinner. I got to do laundry. I got to yes. you just pooped again. And now you pooped. And now I got like just how do people find the time? Yeah, with all that's going on. That's a good question. So people go about homeschooling in different ways. And I should say you need to check your law. Every state has a different set of laws for homeschooling. And so. There are certain things like in Maryland, if you're in Maryland, you have to um, go through an umbrella group, right? So, and they have to oversee what you're doing. Um, I think New York has some pretty strict laws too, <laughs> but, but, but there's different ways to do it. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is if you are that stay at home um, spouse that's doing the homeschooling, taking care of the house is part of your homeschooling then. Right. So when I would ask parents that were in that position, stay at home parents, um, what is your typical day like? There's built in time for household chores. There's built in time for Bible devotions. There's built in time for, um, of course, math, social studies, science, reading, writing, all of those things. But most of the laws, if you, they, have, they don't require you to teach all day, like from seven to three. It's usually right. about a four hour period of time. And there's many ways to do it. You can, you can become part of a co-op where it's, and they function in different ways too, but it can be a set of parents that have kids about the same age. And so if you're, you're really strong in math this person is really strong in art and this person is really strong in reading and that each thing you each teach each other's children just that mm. topic that you're really good at and you can make that co-op meet monday through friday maybe they meet monday wednesday friday or just tuesdays and thursdays um whatever the group needs right um you can you know, you can build your own group. You can tap into a group that exists. Nowadays, there's online learning. There's, um, oh my goodness, there's all kinds of programs online that you can have your kids do for an hour here. And then that's when you go do maybe something else. Or I don't know, I'd be the parent that would be right there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I don't think I could just leave them with, you know, I want to know what's going on too. Um, and so, you know, there's, so there's many, many ways to do it. You can have a set curriculum that you go through if, if you need that kind of structure, but 
a lot of parents just go with what their kids are interested in and then find things like um, my, my uh, partner in crime here, Dr. Uh, crime, but we created Black Family Home Educators and Scholars. It's a Facebook group right now. And um, we have close to 2000 members and I can hear her in my voice, in my head saying, um, home educators, we re- you really curate your children's learning, right? Mm-hmm. So as the teacher, like the homeschool parent, you are finding the resources and you're in Brooklyn. I mean, you have museums, you have all kinds of rich resources oh, yes. that are right at your fingertips that can become part of your, your curriculum. So you go places, you bring your children, play, like we're studying something and there's an exhibit, let's go see what they have to say about that. Um, you know, you're studying the dinosaurs, let's go look and see what they really look like, you know, um, those kinds of things. Uh, um, so it's not any one way. I, I think you, you have to start with what is your purpose? What is your mission? What is your vision for your children? Mm. And then if that's your vision and this is your mission, then that will help guide you what your day-to-day would be like. If you want your children to be independent thinkers, independent learners, to have a joy for learning, if that's your vision for them, then they need that now, right? They need you to, like when they, when they learn something, then you celebrate it. And, and I used to do that as a teacher. I mean, if somebody was struggling with their times tables and then all of a sudden we had that breakthrough, the whole class broke out because we, you know, because you set up a, you set up this, this learning um, environment where it's okay to struggle. The struggle to learn is worth it. We're, we're gonna work smartly though. We're not going to be ridiculous and just do anything. We're gonna, we're gonna keep practicing over and over. Practice, practice. We're gonna do it in different ways until finally you have that breakthrough. And then we'll celebrate that because now you can go on to something else. You know, so that enjoyment of learning is so important. I don't even want to know how they're teaching times tables these days. <laughs> back in my day, you just memorize the thing. Right. <laughs> I don't yeah, I don't even want to know what they're doing. But you're you're so you're so right. I the other day my daughter and I picked her up from school and I had a book in my hand. So she's looking at my book and she goes, How many pages is this? And I go, 203. She goes, 203 wow, let me tell you about my five senses. And like, that's what she learned in school that day and just starts rattling off her five senses. And yeah, like we just, we sat in the middle of the street and just celebrated that moment. Yes, you know your five senses. Tell me about smelling. What do you smell right now? So yeah, I I can totally see that. Yeah, Yeah. so what about the people, because obviously not everyone is going to be able to homeschool. Mm-hmm. And as someone who I struggled through New York City public schools, I was I was that kid who, especially in elementary school, I did my work way too fast. Mm-hmm. And then I would just start talking to everybody because I was bored. But my classrooms had so many people in them, even and I was in the, uh, in the gifted program. <laughs> yeah, I was in the gifted program, but there were still too oh, many wow. people in there for me to get the special attention that I needed or the extra attention. And ultimately, I just got pushed out and pushed forward and it really killed a love of learning. Mm. So how do how do we how do we advocate for our kids within these broken school systems if we have to send them there? Yeah, that see, that's a hard one, because 
I, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of parents that homeschool, it was a last resort for them. Mm. That trying to advocate in the school, you know, I, I wrote a book about um, single mothers who were homeschooling and not working full time. And this one mom, Yvette, she had two sons, both in middle school. And she went to their teachers because the, the children were getting in trouble. Just what you described. They're working quickly, finishing early and disturbing people and getting in trouble, being labeled a troublemaker. One teacher in the building, she went to sit down with that person and said, listen, I see the work that's coming home. It is beneath him. He is able to do more work. If you give him more challenging work, he will not have time to be in trouble. The teacher said, okay, let's try it. And the child was fine. Same school, two grades, two, a different grade, went to this teacher and said the same thing. And this teacher said, nope, I can't give him more difficult work until he can behave himself, da, 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 you know, focusing on the behavior. So mm -hmm. when you ask me how to advocate that when you have a teacher, sometimes a principal that's so focused on trying to control this child's body that they can't recognize what you can do as a teacher to get what you really want. I, I don't know how to work through that. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know because that's somebody has to change their mind. And it's, it's not you as a parent, you know, that child, you were with them from birth. And even if you are um, adoptive parent or you are a foster care parent, you live with this person, this little person, you know, that little person better than the adult that they spend, you know, what, eight, seven, eight hour, however long school is the school day with, you know, them and you're going to be with them longer. Right. I, I don't know how to change that teacher's mind. I remember with my son, this well-behaved child, but he wasn't being challenged, but he was still behaving because he knew better. <laughs> um, I would go to the conference and I, and the first thing I would hear is, oh, Stephen is such a good boy. So well-behaved. I don't have any issues. And I would say, okay, that's what I expect. Can you tell me about what's going on with this grade right here in math? I'd have to force them to tell me about the, the learning because they were so busy telling me about the behavior because you have a black child who behaves. That's a problem. Um, but you, you know, focusing on what you know to be true about your child and focusing on really being able to articulate what you know your child needs. So at one point, my son, I told you he had a processing disorder. When he got older, I had this problem with him. And this is common. This is so common in public schools. The homework comes home. We, you know, I see him do the homework. It goes back in the notebook. But something happens when, we get to, when he gets to school. It doesn't come out of the notebook and go where the teacher wants it. So then you get this progress report that says zero or F. 
what's going on? <laughs> I don't understand what is going on. And I, I said, here's, this was in high school. This is what, so this is what I need you to do. I need you to take that agenda book. You know how they have the agenda book teacher. Yeah. And I need you to make sure Stephen is writing his homework in it every day. If you could just check that, just check to make sure the homework is written. Then I guarantee you, it will be done in the backpack. But they teachers don't have, don't want to have take the time to do that. It, they don't have time. I had to get a friend of mine that looks like a lawyer, real professional, to come into one of those teacher meetings, put a recorder down, and then we finally got what Stephen needed with this wow. agenda book. And wow. that was this is while I was working on my PhD when I was just a parent, right? That it's eye awakening to me because up to this point, my children were in the schools that I was teaching in for the most part. So I didn't have that issue. But when I became just a parent, now I can really relate to you because I had to go through some stuff to get what my children needed. So if I have all these education, these degrees and stuff, and I have to go through it, I know other people are going to have, it's a, it's a struggle, but don't give up. This is your child. If it takes yeah. bringing that polished person in with you to, to, you know, to come in and sit with you at the table and, and everybody thought they didn't ask if she was the, if, you know, my lawyer, they assumed she was. And I, mm. it wasn't until after the meeting, they said, is this your lawyer? I said, no, <laughs> it's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but she served her purpose. <laughs> she served her purpose. <laughs> So I say that to say you do what you need to do. Parents have rights. You have a whole lot of rights. You can call a meeting when you need a meeting. Call a meeting. Don't wait for the report cards. I mean, because if you think about by the time the report card comes, you know, it, a lot of time has passed. If you, you know, check that backpack, look at those homework. If you see, you know, bad grades coming in, you need to get on, get to the teacher. We need to talk. Um, you know, teachers, sometimes they're hesitant to call a parent. You call, you email, nowadays you have email, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, get in touch with that. Let the, mm -hmm. let the teacher know that you, that this child matters to you, right? And, and that you are here. You don't have to physically be there. I don't think I, these days especially with COVID and all that. Now they're not letting visitors in. So um, in some schools, so, but you can still be present by emailing, by calling, by sending notes, um, you know, walking up to that office and, and this is a note, note for Mr. Miss so-and-so, you know, my son's teacher um, and ask for that meeting, you know, and, and yeah be able to articulate what you need um, on behalf of your child. Mm. Yeah. If you can you know, be in the building, be in the building though. <laughs> uh, speaking of, of COVID, I was talking to my brother-in-law is a teacher and I was talking to him the other day and he was telling me that this group of seniors, that their last normal school year was their freshman year. And I think about all of the development that happens between the ninth and 12th grades that have just been missed out. That's what do you, what do you think the effects of the last two school years really 
Uh, what do you think that's going the effect that's going to have on kids? The first thing I think about is the social emotional um, well-being of those children. Um, you have to remember that not only is it COVID, but um, you know you had the the protests that were going on after George Floyd's murder, um, and then you have January sixth. Um, you know this is a. I don't remember, I don't know what normal is anymore. I don't remember. It's yeah. done something to me. I was never a homebody, I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can only imagine what it's doing to our young people. Now they're going off to college after being in this situation. And what is that like? Um, I. I I think we have to be more, and especially in the black community, we're gonna have to be more and more open to this idea of mental health, um, radical Um, Mm self-care. One of my Emory colleagues, well, she was ahead of me, but Fernita Rare, she talks about radical self-care for not just ourselves, but for our children. I spend a lot of time now working with teachers my class is talking about their teachers caring for themselves too, because you will get burned out in this type of climate quick. Yeah. Not just what's going on in the school, but what's going on in the world. We, the prices are going up, the shortage and the, the news. And, and sometimes I think the news just makes it worse. You know, I, is it good to know, or just can I be in my bliss and not know <laughs> about all you the You don't need to report that, everything. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, but I think mental, uh, we have to do something in, to do a check-in on our children's mental health. How are you coping with this idea of going off into college or whatever you're gonna do after high school? What's next? COVID is still not quite done yet. We're not out of it. And that's very much, um, we can't get caught up in the political nature of all of that. Unfortunately, I'm in a situation where, um, you know, we can't have mask mandates on campus. All right, Georgia. I don't understand it. I, I don't, I really don't understand it. Um, but you've got to do what you need to do for you, protect yourself, you know, follow the science. Um, it, it, it's, um, I even, I, I worry when people say, oh, just have faith and, you know, get out there. You know, God created the science. If you read the creation story, you read about, you know, the, you know, he created the water cycle and the planets and all of this stuff. He's a God of order and science is part of this. Um, and he allowed us to discover that if we wear this mask, we can protect ourselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how I think of it. Um you know, and so I do, I, I don't, I don't know. We need, and we need more health, mental health workers. Yeah. Well, you know, I just think I, I quote this a lot in my talks. If you are, we've been watching black people murdered uh, on video for mm-hmm. roughly the last eight years. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I, I remember back in the day, like Abner Luima, Amadou Diallo, but it's really been a consistent part of our, of our society right. for the last eight years. So mm-hmm. if you're a 16 year old black kid right now, 
That means half of your life, half of your life, you've been watching people who look like you be murdered over and over. And you've been hearing the stories and seeing the protests. And, and then you've spent the last two years not really in school, but in mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine for those kids, well, how does that feel? How are you, you're getting ready to go to college. How are you approaching that? Are you cutting, when, so I wasn't that smart when I was 17. And mm-hmm. I only applied to schools in the South because okay. I wanted to be warm. That was it. That was, that was my entire rationale. Okay. But like, I could see the kid now saying, I'm not going to apply to schools in the South because I think that it is more dangerous mm-hmm. for me there. Mm-hmm. Or the kid saying, well, I grew up here and I know the dangers here. I'm just not going to go anywhere because mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anywhere safe for me in this world. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think about the yeah. toll that takes on on a child's psyche because your brain's still being developed that's right you're still tra- right. like and you're going through all of this while trying to figure out your place in the world and who that's you right. are what what does it mean to be you and it's, i think that you know that's all the more reason that as parents we need to be really in touch with our children and and what are you know as much as they will tell us and share with us and hopefully we have the relationships where they will come to us and let us know um, that's really important, but, and having those conversations just really open without judgment, without ridicule, because this is a world that is, I, I don't even know what to say about it. It's, it's not, yeah. it's not easy. It's not easy. And being black makes it harder. But I think the, the other part of that is we have to experience black joy on a daily basis. We have to remember what our people have been through, that we represent those that chose to survive, those that were strong enough to survive the atrocities. Um, I've had a chance three times to go to Ghana and stand in the dungeons where they went before they went onto the ships. And um, that does something to you whatever happens in the world because my answer survived that i'm going to survive this right and if i can i think that we need to be passing that on to our children Mm. if we know our history we know that we've been through a whole lot and and you know and your faith man your faith god tells you you know this world's going to be trials and tribulations. This is what this is. Mm-hmm. This is what this is. We're in it. Be of faith. Know who you are. Know whose you are. So that you can move about in this world, in that power, in that strength. That's got to be part of what we talk about. Whatever you believe, you've got to, hopefully you believe in the true God, a true God, a powerful God. And, you know, I, I teach Sunday school and I'm so grateful for my babies. They come at third, fourth and fifth grade. Um, so grateful for them that they are still coming in the middle of all of this. Um, we went online during COVID. Uh, I think that building them up is really important so that they can face whatever they're gonna face in school. And they tell me, you know, you know, at one point they told me that they were told not to pray in school. I said, wait a minute, nobody can stop you from praying. Nobody can stop you from praying. Right. And this, 
You don't, God doesn't need an antenna. You don't necessarily have to do this, but you have that voice in your head that you can control. And when you need, somebody's bothering you, you call out to the Lord in here. You know, you have an adult, you need to tell the adult and you have God. And when you get home, tell your parents, tell me, we will work on it. You have people, Mm -hmm. you're not in your, in the world alone. You have people, you have God, you have me, God put me in your life. You know, you have people. So be your village. I'm part of your village. That's so important for them today. Um, Short January 7th, I reached out some, to some former students who were teaching, and one in particular. I wanted to know what it was like to teach January 7th, the day after the insurrection. This young man, African-American male teacher, teaching fifth grade, and he he broke down in tears, mm-hmm. recounting what it was like. Those fifth graders knew that had they, that been black and brown people, it would have been a different story altogether. And they, when the, when the Pledge of Allegiance came on, one of the students said, oh, hell no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And he said, it's okay, you don't have to, but let's talk about it. And they spent the day talking about it. And that's what they needed to talk about it. And they articulated that Mr. So-and-so, if the world doesn't like me because of my skin, what's the point? Because he has black, he had black and brown children in his class, all black and brown. Fifth grade, been on the planet about 10 years, that's it. And they took all of that in. So you're asking about the high school kids? I'm telling you what the fifth graders took in. Okay? So you, you, that gives you a taste of what the, the older children, it's going to be even deeper. So the, the depth of how this is touching them, we will only begin to see as it plays out. I, and, I, and they, they all need to talk to somebody. Yeah. Our, children, our youth need to talk. And what we ended up doing, this teacher, oh my God, it was so, it was beautiful. This was last semester. Um, I have a colleague who's into art. She's an art, um, art, she's an artist. She's also a, a, a elementary professor too, like me. Um, so we got her. We have um, another colleague who his specialty is, I, I would say, in the area of play and the role of play in learning. That's one of his specialties. And um, the fifth grade teacher and a guidance counselor. And we did these art studio sessions online because we were in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, online. And we got artists, local artists, somebody from Atlanta, Brandon Sandler. The, the adults, our minds were blown. He, got, he went on, he showed us his studio. And it turns out this is the man who did the art for the Black Panther. Yes. Whoa. 
we were all that that was our reaction too. This man <laughs> is so humble, he didn't even tell us that. Okay. <laughs> and then he proceeded to do a lesson. So that so the the guidance counselor would start with something like, I feel blank when blank. And the adults would fill in the the, the, uh, the sentence. I feel angry when I hear about people dying of COVID, right? And then the kids would start to fill in. They would just say theirs. And after we get our feelings out, then, you know, the artist, in this case, it was Brandon Sandler, oh my goodness, um, would show us a technique. And the kids all had art kits. And we, so we're online doing this. They're in their homes and they have art kits, they have paper and they are doing their work and, and the adults are doing their work and then we share our work. And we did this like once a week, different strategies for expression. And it was so powerful. In the end, the kids really, they, they, they sent me little notes um, to say, you know, how important it was, how art had become a way to express themselves, um, learning that it doesn't have to be perfect, you know, that, that this is something for you. Um, and so you do things like that. You know, when you get, when he told me that the fifth graders felt like nobody cared because of the color of their skin, I had, I, you can't hear that and not do something. I, yeah. well, some people maybe, I couldn't. And I don't know what to do, but when I brought it to my colleagues, this is what they came up with. And it was beautiful. So what if you are around youth, children, give them time to talk and express. It can be art, it can be through play, it can be it can be anything, music. Yeah. Um, writing. They need to get it out. I'm not a therapist, yeah. but I know the power of once I say like when you earlier when you said you know I you're self-deprecating you have a habit you acknowledged it to everybody that's listening and now it's up to us to hold you accountable right yeah yeah <laughs> so right and so now we have this concern for our children and youth what are we going to do what are we going to do we have to do something we called it the Righteous Rage Art Studio. I, the I kids love were it. like, the kids were like, what is Righteous Rage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you understand when you're older, all right? <laughs> I said it's a good kind of anger. It makes you do something mm -hmm. good on behalf of other people. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Man. Dr. Cheryl, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the kickback today. Uh, yeah. Before we go, please tell the people where they can find you, how they can keep up with you, how they can support your work, everything. Oh, wow. Okay. I am at the University of Georgia. My email is C fields, like the tobacco fields, corn fields at uga.edu. Um, if you are interested in coming to UGA to do a uh, PhD on Black homeschooling, please come join me. <laughs> I need to leave a legacy behind. Um, I need more people to come and do this work. Um, the Black Family Home Educator and Scholar Group is on Facebook. We do annual teach-ins. We share resources. Um, 
I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you on the socials? I I am. I'm not active. I need to get active. Um, but I do have a Twitter. And can I leave it with you somehow? I'll, I have yeah. to find it. If yeah. my, my daughter would be so embarrassed. She, she, she wrote them down for me. Mom, it's this, this, this. <laughs> I'm from the old school. Uh, look, I, I understand. I, I'm 34 and I struggle. Like, all right, I, I know I have to tweet about this. I need to post on Instagram. Right. That's how people see things. I just don't want to. Can I just do it and people find it? Doesn't it work that way anymore? <laughs> It doesn't, right? I, yeah, I have to get better about it, but I, I don't. Um, I'm not active, not as active. On Facebook, I'm active because I, I understand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I, I really hope my the audience enjoyed this conversation. I know I did, oh, and thank you. thank you for the for the words of encouragement, uh, not just for me, but for parents, for educators, for our youth. Yeah. We we needed those. Yes. Yes. I, I, I need to do something. If I can help, let me know. Please let me know. I want to help. Yeah, we, we, we're going to talk more. We're going to talk so okay. much more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Kicking in with the homie. Kicking in with the homie. Kicking in with the homie.